Stephen Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, happy to be here, man. How are you doing today? Yeah, very good. It's been a bit chilly outside, but uh, it's nice to be indoors and having a conversation. So. Yeah, no, it's, it's great to have you on ever since I had a chat with you at the Animus uh, Fire Blow Festival. You were just a great candidate to have on. You shared you know, some of my interests and I could just see there was some good insights on you know, self-awareness and mental health. Tell us a bit about yourself. Gosh, where do I begin? Um, I grew up in Johannesburg. I would say that I was fortunate enough to get the opportunity to experience Experience uh, two sides of the financial spectrum because I grew up with my mother on the one side who wasn't very financially well off, but then I would spend time with my father who was financially well off. And the, the experience, what it was like socially, was dramatically different. So it was interesting for me to perceive two different kinds of social behaviors and how I need to engage with these two different worlds. That was a very um, uh, interesting introduction to hypervigilance and needing to be completely aware of how people are and how I need to fit myself into that social situation. Then I. Um, my stepbrother practiced shamanism in the Amazon jungle. For, shamanism? Yeah. In that the, sounds very intriguing. He had uh, epilepsy, like a severe case of epilepsy, and he was tired of taking Western medication. And he was looking for an alternative uh, healing methodology. And he found this group called the Ayahuasca Foundation in Iquitos in Peru. Um, and they took him on as the first epilepsy uh, patient, if you will. Yeah. And um, since he's been there, he hasn't had a single epileptic episode. And there have been no refined chemicals for his, any, any of his treatment. It's all plant-based. Uh, so that propelled my interest into the uses of the natural world and plant-based substances for our betterment rather than using refined chemicals. I then went into landscaping also due to the interest I had in how the natural environment can influence our, our well-being. Um, if you're sitting in, inside a you know an orchard and you've got a beautiful natural landscape, you I don't know one single person that says that they feel awful. Whereas if you're sitting in a concrete room and there's no soft edges and there's no natural you know, hormones, pheromones, or any of those things taking place, majority of people can say that they don't feel 100% at peace. So I spent a lot of time doing uh, landscaping, did that for about two years, and I came to learn that I'm terrible at construction. So uh, not everyone's game. Huh? Not, not everyone's game. The idea was lovely, um, and then I moved along uh, into uh, teaching. So I moved to Vietnam for five years, and I taught English there, but I also designed uh, environmental awareness workshops for kids and for adults. So in Vietnam, their nature awareness is not very good. There's a lot of real problems that are happening to the natural world there. And the citizens of Vietnam, not all of them, of course, but the majority of the public don't recognize the natural world to be a priority which is a sadness in my opinion because Vietnam is, there's so many areas of Vietnam that's untouched by human eyes. Yeah. And there are so many species there that are still undiscovered, whether it be plants you know, or, or um, animals. There's so many different things there that are undiscovered. So I really took on this mission to try to help kids become a lot more aware and appreciative of the natural world yeah. through the means of English teaching. So the parents and everybody was happy the fact that the kids were learning English and they were learning it through a medium of environmental awareness, which was really wonderful. I enjoyed that experience. Um, 
So I also, in my time there, I traveled all around Asia, done Sri Lanka, and I've been to Nepal and India and all sorts of different kinds of uh, cultures. Most of my time is spent in natural environments and also the pursuit of their religious practices. So I, I spent a lot of time going to the temples and going to the shrines and going to those um, special places in these different countries. And I would, wanted to bear witness to how they engage with something that's so vulnerable. Much like people go to mass, you know, in the Western culture, they go to church or whatever it might be. It's a very vulnerable and sensitive and personal space to be into. And I was very curious what it was like in a variety of cultures in Southeast Asia. And that was wonderful. I've seen some incredible sights from there. Some horrific things, but some wonderful <laughs> things as well. And then in my time in Vietnam, I... Um, started spending more time with fire dancing, where we met at the Animus Glow Fest, right? Yes. Now, I've had a relationship with fire dancing since I was around 13 years old. Started out just with a stick and me spinning very, very fast, yeah. uh, thinking everyone is having a wonderful time because they're watching the stick move very, very fast and it's on fire. So everyone goes, woo, 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 which is great. But over time, I started to really get into the sensation of flow state. And I found how it was a strong meditation for me. Now, growing up, I would spend periods where I would spend a lot of time doing flow, fire dancing, and then I would spend years where I don't touch the staff or any of the toys at all. And then and in Vietnam, uh, I found a circus community there. And uh, really sure. yeah, I was, I was really, really fortunate to meet them. I must say they kind of saved me in some regards. So it's uh, being alone in a foreign country, not knowing anybody there and having anyone to relate to can be a really shocking experience for most people and scary and, and isolating. So meeting people who are you know, like-minded and interested in the sensation of flow, whether it be juggling or fire dancing, it was a major relief. So I picked up fire dancing there again and I went through a, um, a tough personal experience and fire dancing helped me heal myself in that period. And that propelled me into studying what was actually happening in my brain whilst I was in flow state. Why was this healing me? What is actually the, what are the things that I am doing that is healing me through fire dancing? And then I learned about Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel. Uh, these two people are fascinating individuals. Stephen Kotler is one of the leading experts in flow state uh, in terms of neuroscience. And then Jamie Wheel is a massive advocate for flow state, but he's a, a neuroanthropologist. So he's kind of spent a lot of time studying flow states outside of peak performance. Stephen Kotler is a neuroscientist, pursues peak performance, whereas Jamie Wheel is a bit more social awareness and flow state dynamics. Spent a lot of time studying flow state using their courses and their content to get a better understanding of this. And gosh, then I came to recognize that one of the fundamental pillars of flow state is emotional intelligence. Because in order to access flow, you need to challenge yourself. You need to put your head against a risk. Yes, so maybe to you, what, what is flow? To me, flow is, I mean, I can give you the neurological explanation of no, that actually. No, no, no. So essentially flow state is when your prefrontal cortex, the front part of your mind, which manages your critical thinking, your cognitive thinking, and also your monkey mind, your, your inner chatter. That all happens in your prefrontal cortex. Also your management of time, our human understanding of time being linear, that's all managed in your prefrontal cortex. So when you get into flow states, that prefrontal cortex temporarily calms down and your amygdala starts to get active. Now your amygdala manages your primal emotions. That's where your anger and your rage and your love and your joy, that starts to kind of come out over there. And 
when your amygdala gets activated, there is a very, very short space of time where you're, you could access fight or flight. Flow state essentially happens when you acknowledge the potential for fight or flight, but you choose to kind of just relax into the experience and you change the direction. Rather than fighting, rather than running away, rather than fawning, rather than freezing, any of those, you can access flow state. And when that happens, all of those chemicals that were in your prefrontal cortex, your norepinephrine, your serotonin, your dopamine, all of those things now flood to other areas of the brain. And you get increased creativity, you get increased problem-solving skills, your sense of time disappears entirely, and you're completely enriched in, Stephen Kotler calls it stir, which is stillness, uh, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness. Not still, stir, there you go. And your neurological fancy terminology, that is what flow state is on a book. But when it comes to feeling, for me, flow state is my connection to God, it's my connection to my community, and it's my connection to the earth, it's my connection to my body and to my own emotions, and it helps me ground myself as well as the people that are in that flow state with me, and it helps us, it helps me feel a lot more capable and confident in the next step that I take in my life, wherever that step might be. Yes. Yeah, that's my idea of flow state. And what gives you that certainty in the next step of life from the sort of understanding of that? I wouldn't say it's a step of certainty. I would say that it's more a step in that I can be certain of uncertainty. I'm certain that everything is uncertain. (laughs) And so coming to terms and accepting that state of mind, that mindset of that everything is uncertain, but I am capable. That's where I feel a lot more confidence in whatever step it is that I choose to take because I trust my body and I trust my heart and I trust my mind and that whatever step I choose to take is intended for my own personal well-being as well as for the people that I love. So, yeah, it's not a matter of being certain of what step I take. It's more a matter of trusting myself that something will happen positively. Yes, that you're capable and that a positive outcome and you'll grow from it. Exactly, yeah. And so, this flow state, now with emotional intelligence, you say you can harness it, go, go into that. Uh, it, it's, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the only tool, I mean, I think to get access flow state you need a multiple, multiple keys yes. in order to get into that state. So what are those keys to you? Uh, emotional intelligence is one, discipline is another, consistency is another. So, the reason why you need consistency is because of the development of muscle memory, is the development of memory and the, the, the practice that you're doing and that you need to consistently push yourself 4% harder every time you do it in order to potentially access flow because you can never go back to the same experience that you've had before. You can never repeat that same experience. That experience is now in your muscles and it's in your cells and it's in your memory. So you will never be able to get into flow again if you do the exact same thing, the same. You can only really get into flow if you take a little bit of a risk, if you step a little bit outside of your comfort zone. So you need consistency so that your skill set can be progressive. Now obviously you would need discipline for the same reason in that you're going to have hard days. You're going to have days where it's not working, where it's, you're not getting into flow and it's frustrating. Yes. And if you're going to have days where you know society or circumstances are going to be derailing you towards what feels good. But discipline means that it doesn't matter what happens around you, you're still consistent for this thing towards this skill set. Now the emotional intelligence part of it I think is fundamental because when you're taking on a risk like I mentioned before, you can start to approach fight or flight, but you also have multiple other circumstances that can run through your mind. What are these people thinking of me? Do I look rubbish? 
am I even worth doing this? You know, there's a lot of these things that can start running through our minds and, and a lot of vulnerability starts to come through when you're expressing yourself. Any artist would know this, any musician will know this, that you are presenting yourself to people that you don't know and you're showing them a part of yourself that you're never really shown to other people. It's a very scary experience. It's very vulnerable. Yeah. What will they think about that part of me? And will they judge me? Yeah. Um, am I actually rubbish? You know, should I be here? Should I be doing something else entirely? Like there's a lot of these scary, sensitive things that can come about. I found that emotional intelligence is fundamental in that because we need to be aware of those emotions when they're coming up and not shame them and not be, a, you know, uh, not, don't judge ourselves for feeling these emotions because these emotions are necessary to also allow them to come through so that we can, once we've let them pass, we've got more of a comfortable position in ourselves with these emotions and we can access flow a lot more consciously and a lot more comfortably rather than being you know, whooshed from side to side from our own emotional waves, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. Yeah. To, to take control in a sense. Like, in, a, in a sense, yeah. I mean, I don't like to use the word taking control when it comes to the sense of emotions because I think the idea of taking control of your emotions is submissive. It's making your emotions submit to you. And that's, I mean, that's, you're, you are not your own slave. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a bit of, that's a problematic dynamic. You know? yes, you're yes. trying to dominate yourself, you're trying to control. And in my mind, that, like Alan Watts, for example, talks about the backwards law. If you're saying that you need to control something, therefore that means that something is out of control. And nothing is out of control. <laughs> it, yes. it, it's chaos. It, it's just a repetitive uh, function in life, you know? So I prefer to say, rather than taking control of your emotions, it's being aware of them and accepting them for what they are without any judgment or shame. Emotional intelligence itself. Where should people really like focus on it when they go into looking it up? From my opinion and perspective, given it's always going to be subjective for a lot of different people, and you could offer you know statistics or demographics, but it's always going to be different based on the culture, based on the family upbringing, based on the community upbringing, the schooling. There's lots of different factors that could change this, but at least from my perception and the world that I've grown up in. A, a misconception of emotions is that emotions are these things that are coming at you from the outside world. Yeah. Your anger and your rage and your frustration and your anxiety and your love and all of these things are things that are coming from outside you and they're hitting you. And we need to avoid these things. So we need to avoid, like men for example, uh, we have to avoid our anger because it's not socially acceptable anymore, all right? We have to avoid that. And when we start to feel angry now, it's because of something else. You make me feel sad. So that means that the sadness is coming from somewhere else and is hitting me. All of the emotions that we're experiencing can be triggered by outer events, sure. But all of these emotions are inside you. They're all you. And emotions are a biological alert system to make you aware of things that are going on in your body and in your immediate environment. Your anger, pops up because it is your body saying that you need to protect yourself or the people that you love from something. Whether that thing is right or wrong, it, it all depends on the trauma, the conditioning that we've had growing up, you know, our uh, safety mechanisms and security mechanisms and defense mechanisms that we use. We can get angry from random things, all right? But that doesn't mean that the anger is the problem. It's the meaning that we've attached to that emotion. It's the experience that we've had that causes us to feel triggered. That is something that we need to pay attention to, not the emotion. The emotions are there to protect us and to guide us in our life. So my idea is that the misconception many people have is that emotions are something to be ignored. They're things that are coming from the outside world rather than what is actually inside us. A lot of people avoid them. And another thing, from observation, I would say that 
when we try to have deep, meaningful conversations with other people and try to express our vulnerable emotions, a lot of people tend to shy away from that. And I think that a lot of people, they feel really hurt by that when they try to express them, their emotions to people and those people shy away, it can be very, very hurtful. I mean, I've experienced that multiple times throughout my life, as I'm sure everybody has. Yeah. And the one thing that I've come to consider is how those people who are shying away aren't necessarily shying away from you and your story. They are shying away from the emotion that they are now feeling from listening to your story. Your story might be bringing up something in them that they have not resolved, that they have not looked through, and they are not ready to deal with. So they shy away from the topic because they can't process that emotion because it's now, again, an outside force of emotion that is coming to hit me and they're blaming you because you are telling me a story. So that's another misconception, I think, is that ultimately how other people respond to you is completely entirely their own stuff. It's their own world. It's all subjective and it's got nothing to do with you. It literally has absolutely nothing to do with you. There's, I do notice in like interacting with people that deep meaningful conversations, as you said, are feel like they want to avoid them. There's like resilience and maybe it is in that experience of like when they have shared those emotions before, they've felt in a way that's, you know, it was hurtful or, you know, they were shamed or something. And, you know, these are like, can be very interesting and very valuable conversations, but I notice they're hard to get to, like people run away from them. Mm. Or even a taboo, right? It's like, oh, we don't talk about that stuff. Mm. And so I'm not tormented by this ever, forever chasing these level of conversation in a world where instead of it being like the point that we can probably connect over the most, it's like the human experience, right? You know, Mm. you study that field, I study that field, you know, sometimes you can only connect so much, but that human middle ground, that's, that's where people can all relate, right? Mm-hmm. But then people just avoid it. It's, mm-hmm. it's a fear as opposed to just acknowledging, you know, I felt like this because of this scenario, but that doesn't mean I have to let that determine how I experience this moment itself. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people don't know how to do that. And I think it's, it's a long line, a long history of conditioning socially at least in the Western culture, again, it, it's always going to be different depending on the cultures that you go to. That's the one of the most beautiful benefits of traveling is you can see how people engage with their, their families in such a unique way that you could never fathom, uh, whether it be an emotional idea or not. For example, people in Vietnam, the families in Vietnam are very affectionate. They're very physical. They're, they're very playful. They're on top of each other and they're holding each other and they're hugging each other. And none of that is sexual or romantic, but they're just very, very close with each other. Whereas here in South Africa, you don't see that. Yes. Everyone is very guarded and they're keeping one distance and having physical contact is like a taboo now because it means that there's homosexuality involved or there's, you know, romantic gestures that there needs to have some kind of a, you know, sexual innuendo involved in that. All of these conditionings have been going on for many, many, many years. And, you know, we can look at the, the gender stereotypes back in like the 50s, for example. Men would go to work and women would stay at home. And then there's so many stories of the men coming home and abusing their wives, whether it be verbally or physically. Now, that makes you wonder, what were the conversations like for the men at work? Do you think that the men at work were talking openly about what they were feeling? Do you think that they were talking about their sadness, about their anger, their frustration? No, they were guarding it all up entirely because they needed to be presentable. They needed to hold that facade. Then they would go home and the woman would uh, have to submit her own emotions. Maybe it's her desires or her frustrations or her anger or whatever they might be. She has to submit them 
because of the gender stereotype to the man. When the man comes home, I need to now eat. So this woman is not going to talk about her emotions at all. And we've been conditioned that way for such a long time. Even in schooling systems nowadays, we have to sit and listen to the teacher. We don't talk openly about our experiences. We don't share the things that we enjoy as much. We just parrot fashion, listen, absorb, and then, you know, vomit it up again. <laughs> and like, I, none of the structure or conditioning has really been uh, catering for our own emotions and our emotional awareness. And I think that a prime example, as you were saying a minute ago, of our humanity was COVID-19 during the lockdown. People weren't working. And the only thing that really kept people alive was art was watching and looking at other people's art or listening to their music, their expression, their vulnerability was the thing that were keeping people going. And there are a lot of people out there who are looking for these conversations. They're looking for people to talk to about these things. On one area, it's to try to feel like they're not alone. In the other area, it's an opportunity for them to express themselves and have that have somebody hear them. And the other point is to get new perspectives and to learn. And I think that, you know, aside from the peak performance or flow stage and aside from the absolute perfect wellness that this whole world is now going into the wellness movement where it's all the yoga and it's all green tea and all of these things <laughs> which is all great like I'm not going to judge them in any way shape or form but there's so many different things that people are not trying to do all at the same time but they're not really helping you go through your emotions they're distracting you from your emotions there are more and more things for you to do rather than actually just sit with your emotions so yeah I think that uh, there needs to be a lot more education and acceptance for people in the vulnerable states. Even if you're in an environment with people who don't know what to say to you and you're in an emotional state, but still feel comfortable and confident enough to share it and to be able to sit and hold that space for those people, that needs to be educated. That needs to be a lot more available to people. In a moment where you're sharing emotions with someone, that, that's kind of, a, kind of a special thing, right? But like, there'll be people who, who will say, I don't want you to see me like you know. It's like as it almost gives the idea that I must show myself in a certain way, as opposed to just being who you are. And we only talk about these type of things. And you know, if, if you start sharing your emotions and experiences, people are like maybe get the impression like, okay, well, why are you sharing that? It's like, is there a problem with you? Mm. Well, I'm sharing my emotions. Is there a problem with me? There's a lot of preconceived ideas. Even if you have like a one-to-one talk with someone, they'll think like. Oh, are they hitting on me? You know what I mean? There's mm. like that. There's mm. these almost role assertions, isn't mm. there? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's not even just social. It's, it's even on a family level. You know, family members do that. You know, if I may share a rough personal experience that I, that one, one of the catalysts that kind of propelled me into this healing path in my life was my brother was going through a very, very uh, dramatic time when he was 15, as many people are. And he cut his wrists, all right? I was around nine years old at the time. And he came out of the room and showed me his wrists and started laughing whilst there was blood dripping down his arms. Yeah. That's dramatic. That's a lot. So it's a lot to take in. It's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. But I didn't know what it was that I was taking in. I was a yes. nine-year-old kid. This is, okay, you're bleeding. I need to now protect you. I distracted my mother and my stepfather and I went into the room and I started cleaning my brother's wrists. Whilst we were doing that, my mother and my stepdad walked into the room. Now, in retrospect, it's hard to fathom what a mother must be thinking about when they see their child cutting their own wrists. Hard to fathom that. I wouldn't be able to fathom that. But the things that my mother said and my stepdad said will sit with me forever. Firstly, my mother said, how can you do this to me? How can you cut your wrists? You're cutting your wrists. You are struggling with your life. You're really, really having a bad time and you need help. But my mother says, how can you do this to me? In tears and she's freaking out. Yeah. My stepdad said, you did it the wrong way. You should have gone down. 
that's two problematic responses. And these are direct role models in our life. These are our parents taking care of us, and these are the, the response they had. Now, this is just one example, and I know that these things happen to similar kinds of things happen to a lot of people around the world. And the reason why I brought that up was it took me a long time to realize that my mother's response to that, which to anyone's ears is a horrible response, but my mother's response to that was purely because she didn't know how to process the emotions that my brother was going through, and she didn't know how to process the emotions that she was going through, and she felt attacked by the experience. Again, how could you do this to me? The emotions are coming now at me. So it's not just a social thing where you're talking to strangers. It's happening to everybody around, at least from my understanding, around the world. In their homes, in their classrooms, in their frame groups, in the park, in the supermarket. It's happening to everyone everywhere. And we continue as though it's okay because we need to maintain that facade, as you mentioned. We need to make sure that people see us in a certain way. So I can never let anyone know that that actually really hurt my feelings. It's a real shame. In a world where we are bombarded with emotional scenarios and, you know, thoughts and feelings to just try to paint the world as like this rigid, like none of that happens. And when it does happen, it's unusual. I think that's the thing, right? Is we make it look like this unusual transition. Mm. But emotions are experienced all the time. But if you watch Hollywood movie, it's only the big moments mm. anyone shows anything. Mm, absolutely. It's another interesting dynamic, and this relates to storytelling, is how, um, call it 20 years ago, the spiritual movement all practicing with Reiki and they're practicing with auras and you know all of these wonderful terminologies and ideas and at the time that's where they were just ideas the scientific community said that they're not real they do not exist we do not have auras that is hippie bullshit <laughs> right but now science has proven that it is true we all emit certain magnetic fields. Every single individual emits magnetic fields. And the color spectrum is going to change depending on your state of mind and your emotional state, i.e. your aura. <laughs> yes. Okay. And then we've also got the field, the great big field that's termed that in science as well as in spirituality, which is the source, the interconnectedness of everything. Science is now proving the spirituality dynamic. So these stories that we practiced with religious movements, with spiritual movements, they all have fundamental influences on our day-to-day -day lives if we pay attention to them and recognize their value. When it comes to emotional intelligence, right, it's very valuable. How do you cultivate that? There's a lot of different techniques that people can use to cultivate that. I would say that everybody has an awareness of their emotions. They know when they start to feel uncomfortable, they know when they start to feel angry, they know when they start to feel sad, but they don't name it. They don't say, now I feel angry, I am feeling angry. A lot of people don't tend to do that. They kind of just let that emotion rumble inside of them. So one of the things that you can start to do to develop emotional awareness is just to name the emotion that you're experiencing, all right? So if you are feeling angry, you say to yourself, I'm feeling angry. If you're feeling scared about whatever is happening around you, you say to yourself, I am now feeling scared. You acknowledge it and you admit it. And once you acknowledge and you admit it, your body is now going to adjust a little bit. Your body is going to start releasing certain hormones and pheromones that are going to respond to what you have said. Your body responds to your thoughts and your words. When you say, I am now feeling scared, your body is going to start producing cortisol in order to try to develop the adrenaline, to try to protect you and act to be able to respond to the experience. If you don't really name it and you're not developing the cortisol and the adrenaline, you're not going to respond to the experience effectively. So number one, name the emotion that you're experience. A fairly simple technique. 
And the more times you do that, the more you're going to get comfortable with that practice and you're going to have a lot more acceptance of your emotions. There's emotional reprogramming that you can go through as well, which is a fascinating topic. So when we have experiences at a young age, we attach meaning to those experiences. Okay, so say, for example, at a young age, I was bitten by a dog and now I'm afraid of dogs. So after that time I was bit, every time I saw a dog, I would remember this bad memory. Yes. And my fear would amplify. The neural pathway of that memory would actually calcify every time you remember that event. So because it's more calcified, that becomes the highway of your thoughts. And that fear becomes worse and worse and worse and worse. Now, what you can do then is when you go back to that original point, that original dog, that original memory, and you try to observe that from a different perspective, rather than viewing it from first person, in you being the victim of that, you'll try to observe it third person and try to look at it non-judgmentally. Consider what's going on there. Maybe that dog was just having a really bad day. <laughs> Maybe that dog was scared and that's why I bit you. Not all dogs are like that. So when you go back to that first memory and you change the narrative of that memory, you are creating a new neural pathway from that original point. Now that neural pathway is going to be very small. It's going to be very, very thin because the old one is majorly calcified through many, many years. So you will need to now consistently remind yourself of this new neural pathway. Every time you see a dog, you go through the same pattern. It's not the same dog. It's a, a different dog. Not all dogs are like that. And you just continuously remind yourself like that, the new neural pathway will become more and more calcified. And the old one will actually start to die. It will frizzle away. It'll always be there. There will always be that memory, but it may not be as a dominant a memory compared to the new one. Yes. So that's a perception that you can do. Um, the ways to do that, there's so many. There are so many different kinds of techniques that we could use. There's certain meditation techniques, there's breathing techniques, there's group meeting techniques where we talk about it openly. You can go see a psychologist, you can, there's substances that people take, ayahuasca, you can go to mushrooms, you can go into all sorts of different kinds of things that people have been taking in order to try to relive these experiences and place a new narrative on them, a new memory associated with them. And they come out of those experiences healed. There is an emotional reprogramming technique that doesn't use any substances where you can go into the memory. So you close your eyes and you go into this memory and you try to remember what you were seeing around you, what you heard around you, what you smelt around you. Try to really put yourself in that experience entirely. Then you take notice of what it is that you are feeling in that memory. What is, am I feeling scared? Am I feeling angry? Am I feeling worried? What is this feeling? And when you're comfortable with the awareness of that, you can name that feeling scared. Then you think to yourself, okay, what shape is this feeling? Is it a square? Is it a circle? Is it a triangle? Is it a diamond? Is it oblong? What is the shape? You give it a shape. Then what color is it? All right, what color is this shape? Once you've given it a shape, you decide, okay, is it opaque or is it, you know, is it solid? Is it see-through? What is happening in that regard? And what direction is it spinning? Is it spinning right, up and down? Is it spinning left? What is the direction? Now, once you've got a, a fair visual understanding of that, you go back to yourself and you say, okay, what color do I like? What would I like the color to be? What shape would I like this emotion, this memory to have? What direction would I like it to spin? You choose what you want to do with it. And once you've created this new shape, this new color and the new directional, okay, and you can visualize it in your mind. 
you go back into that memory and you see what you saw and you hear what you heard. And as soon as that old memory starts to come up, that old meaning, that emotional response starts to come up, you remind yourself, you're like, okay, I would like to reuse this new shape that I created, the one that I like, the one that I chose. And you bring that new visual shape into your mind and you will see how your response to the memory is going to be different because now you completely changed your association. So that's one other technique that we could use, which takes time. And it's, it's, it's a really interesting one and it's quite effective. I can't remember the exact terminology for what this technique is, but essentially it's like you go through the memories of the things that you have experienced that have not been fulfilling for you or supportive for your well-being or things that you feel have kind of wounded you in a way. And you try to approach it just like I explained with the previous technique where you visualize what it is that you want to feel. You do the same thing with this technique. So you go into the memory and you think about the emotion that you want to feel. And at the peak of that emotion, you choose a point in your body that you don't normally touch. It could be maybe like the back of your pinky, if you don't normally touch it, or the back of your Achilles tendon, or some area that you don't normally touch. And the peak of that emotion, when it comes, you then put pressure on that point of your body. And when that emotion starts to kind of go down, because our emotions will go kind of like that wave. So when that wave is now starting to go down, you release that tension. You release that pressure point. Then you repeat that cycle of what it is that you want to. The more times you do that, your body and your cells are going to start to remember that that feeling is associated with this pressure point. So thereafter, every time you press that pressure point, your body is going to start releasing the pheromones and the hormones to respond to the feeling that you want to have. A lot of people, at least for me, for many, many years, I thought that my healing and my wellness all needed to come from the cognitive space. I thought that it all needed to come from my cognitive understanding of what was going on so I can change the narrative and put the words in the places that blah, 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 blah. Yes. But really, majority of our trauma is held in our body, in our cells, it's in our skin, it's in our muscles, you know, and our mind is just processing it. But a lot of our, a lot of the stuff that's held in our body, our mind struggles to process because say you've got trauma from the years zero to three years old. You were never able to communicate. You can't speak at that age, but you still had trauma. <laughs> yeah, it still happened. Those experiences, the trauma is held in your body. Why do you think when you're scared, you start to shake? After a traumatic experience, your body starts to shake. Why do we cry? It's our body releasing the cortisol. It's helping us, you know, purge that stuff out. It's a, it's a natural phenomenon for us to spend time in our body. So this technique is one where you're taking the pressure point and you're utilizing your body to actually create an emotion that you want to have. Yeah. Which is a lot of fun. It can be very, very, very effective. And on the side of... You know, not just the mind, but the, the physical aspect of where our body stores stuff. What are good ways to tackle that aspect of ourselves? We're holding all this, this, mm -hmm. you know, this emotional struggles and you know the effects of things happening in our lives in us. Mm -hmm. How do we utilize the knowledge of that and emotional intelligence? At least from my understanding of it so far, is that the the psychological world is only recently starting to come to the awareness of the the need to work on the physical body for processing these things. Yoga is a very, very good technique for working through your physiological traumas. Um, did you ever meet, you did, you would have met Des at the- uh, Yes, I know Des, yes. yes. 
She does um, neuro yes. flow, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was the first time I met her, and she did this neuro flow, and it was it was brilliant in my mind. I thought it was absolutely fantastic, and it is associated very much with what we're talking about here. Maybe where, just give us a brief overview of neuro flow as a sure thing. At least that workshop with her was utilizing poi and flow to kind of put us into a subconscious state of sorts. And then we would slowly gaze from as far as we can on the left with the relaxed eyes and move to the far right. And in that time, we would say an affirmation of, I accept what has happened to me and I trust myself. And there's a variety of other affirmations that you can say. And I personally experienced this when I was doing that whole process. My body started shaking. Literally, I had, I had eaten, <laughs> I had drunk my water, like I was healthy, but my body started shaking and everyone that was there started having really emotional, uh, tough experiences and it was difficult to really communicate what it was because there were no words to describe to other people about what it was that I was, I was processing. I couldn't say to somebody, oh, I'm currently processing you know, the, the trauma that I got when I was 10 because I didn't know what it was. It was my body releasing this trauma. And she explained how when we were you know, apes, <laughs> long, long time ago, um, we would have to spend a lot more time balancing between fight, flight, or freeze. And when we were in our troops and we would sit on the hilltops in the evening, just before the sun would set, we would look over the horizon very, very, very calmly. And that practice of just doing that helped our bodies relax. It helped our minds and our bodies reduce the amount of cortisol that's happening in our systems and balance out all the other chemicals that are in our bodies. But we don't do that anymore. We sit in our cars and we drive and when we watch the sunset, we're doing it with a beer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know we We're constantly filled with these little distractions, as lovely as they are, but they're not the same practice that we did primarily. So that's one technique that can be used is the eye gazing as well in order to do the, the physiological process. Emotional intelligence, if you had to share any thoughts or wisdom around it, you know, why people should cultivate this in themselves? I would definitely say that it's for the benefit of yourself as well as the people that you love and it's a benefit for your future to cultivate a more emotional intelligence because once you can make your darkness you can become more aware of your darkness, your, your emotions, the things that you're afraid of. When you can become more aware of them and you can accept them, you're also able to communicate that to the other people who maybe don't understand. You can communicate to your people why you're behaving this way and why you're feeling this way so that they can then have a better understanding on how to hold space for you, how to be present for you, what it is that you need, because they will not have the same needs as you. They will have completely different needs. So we need to learn how to communicate our needs and why we are experiencing these emotional things. And the only way we can get there is by spending the time to bring that darkness into the light. You will find as well that when you do that, when you become a lot more comfortable with your emotional state, that your confidence levels will boost a lot more because you start to recognize that every single person on this planet has no idea what the hell's going on, <laughs> essentially. You know, we're, we're all just, you know, dice constantly rolling in the, in the chaos magic of the world. So you gain a lot more confidence in who you are in this world because you identify your emotions and you know what you're feeling and you find strength in what you are feeling and you believe a lot more in yourself. It's a lot more possible to believe in yourself because you've taken on the darkest parts of yourself. If you're able to take on the darkest parts of yourself, 
nothing outside of you really can break that apart. We are our own worst critics. We say the worst things to ourselves more than anyone ever can. So if we can take on that darkness and accept it and welcome that darkness as a part of ourselves, the confidence in ourselves that we get thereafter is, at least for me, it's, I'm a whole different person. I used to weigh 110 kilograms. I used to not care about people, romance, developing an education. I was a completely different person because I was too afraid to go beyond my safety mechanisms that I had developed over. And only when I started spending time on my emotional intelligence did I really start to develop that courage and that confidence to start taking care of myself, to recognize how worthy I am for the good things that happen in life and how capable I am in managing the hard things that happen in my life. So I would say that emotional intelligence will help you develop your confidence in yourself It'll help you improve your relationships with the people that you love. It'll help you pursue the things that you want to pursue that you've always been afraid of pursuing. It'll help you do things that you never thought that you could do. You mentioned relationships there. Emotional intelligence in relationships, how important is that? They're fundamental. And in what way does it impact? I think that every relationship is going to be unique. You know, if it's a male and a female relationship, there is no, you can't say that all male or female relationships are going to be the same. It doesn't work in that, that way. And sometimes a female is going to be a lot more aggressive than the man, and the man is going to be a lot more sensitive. And the same thing could be happening the other way around. But I think it's very important in the relationship to be able to communicate what it is that you are feeling with your partner so that they can understand what it is that you're feeling and give you the space or the tools to help you get through that. There was one interesting relationship conversation technique that I heard about. One of the biggest problems or challenges that, that seems to influence a lot of relationships is when they get into an argument, one partner would say, you made me feel this way because you did this. You're placing the blame of what you, I am feeling on you. You did this. It's your fault. And now that person is now like going to be completely offended because no, I didn't. I'm not going to take responsibility for that pain. You know, how can I be the, the one to blame in this entire situation? I'm actually a good person, whatever it might be. You start bashing heads, all right? Now, if you change the wording of that and you say, I feel sad because this thing was not done. I would like this thing to be done. You're not blaming the other person for your emotions anymore. You're helping that person become aware that my emotional state is due to this other little activity that your partner has is capable of helping resolve. They're no longer to blame. It's no longer, you know, one against the other. It's no longer a one up anymore. Now it's just helping each other understand each other better. So emotional intelligence is fundamental in that, it's, it's particularly with men. At least from my understanding so far, many men only really have been allowed to experience anger. That's been the main emotion that they're kind of just encouraged to uh, experience. When it comes to other sensitive dynamics, other sensitive emotions, it's shamed. A lot of men are judged, scrutinized for experiencing sensitive things, love, pleasure, sensitivity, all of these things. And for a man to be able to say, I'm feeling very vulnerable and weak right now without fear of being shamed and bullied, that would be a beautiful day. That would be a wonderful day when men are able to do that. But I don't see it there now. 
but I think it is getting that way slowly but surely. You know, in the relationship thing, I think nothing that bugs people more is if you what you call a character attack, saying that there's something inherently wrong with them or something that they do inferior to because that attacks your sense of self-worth and ability and value, right? Everyone wants to be valued. And rather moving that towards the just the interconnection of two people, we're different and we're just trying to find a way to kind of mesh and work well together and, you know, what works for you here and what works for me there. I think that's definitely valuable. Mm, absolutely. I like a, a little uh, color analogy. Was if you're taking one bold color, let's say yellow, and you take another color blue and you try to force them into each other as individual colors <laughs> that's not going to work what's going to happen when you blend them together is they're going to make something new the only way you can make something new is if you're surrendering parts of yourself if the color yellow is surrendering parts of itself to the blue and the blue is surrendering parts of itself so that eventually they can make green they make something completely new but if they're going to hold on to their own self-righteous sense of what life should be and how things should be they're just going to butt heads and they're never going to mix and that would be quite unfortunate you know i notice when people list like the values they look for in relationships communication is always on top which is i think a really positive step but also indicates a inherent lack of it in experience i think in past relationships you know mm. people be like i really want you to be honest and communicate properly and share your emotions and what bothers you um, and I think so, so much when you, when someone engages in this, that it seems like there's just a total lack of it. Mm. A lack of ability, a lack of... There's a recurring theme in our generation, well, generation, and even other generations. Absolutely. And I think it's also a lack of knowing the words to say. They don't know how to say these things. They don't know the words that are needed to say that. Like we just used this example there of where our sense of value is being attacked. A lot of people say, you did that. Just by saying those three words, it's not helping there become a mutual balance. You are placing somebody else as the sole person to be responsible for the experience. You are responsible for my sadness. You are responsible for my anger. You need to fix it. And you take no accountability for how you're feeling. That doesn't make sense to me at all. And you get all of these people who are just bashing heads trying to believe and prove that they're right. But it doesn't work that way. You know, we need to have the words to be able to communicate our feelings. We need to be able to, firstly, we need to know that it's okay to feel these things and we need the words to be able to share them. Masculine vulnerability. Share the importance of this. Masculine vulnerability. Well, they say that uh, over 70, 75% of the world's suicides are made up of men. It's insane. That's scary. And sometimes that's passed around as a joke at tables around men. But I know that every one of those people at that table are scared of that reality. I think that masculine vulnerability is being confused with sexuality. They're associating sensitivity with their sexual orientation. They're thinking that if I'm sensitive, I'm acting like a homosexual. That I will actually now start attracting other men because I'm sensitive. It's a weird... I don't, I don't get why that happened. I don't know where that happened. But I think it is fundamentally toxic to believe that. Yeah, there's a strong sexual orientation mix-up that seems to be going on when you say to somebody, you know, where's your feminine side? <laughs> you know, and they think, excuse me, I'm not a girl. You're like, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying you're a girl. I'm saying, where's your sensitivity? Where is your 
like holding a, an innocent child, you're not going to be having your strongest force of masculine strength. You're going to be using your sensitive nature. You're going to be using a gentle side of yourself to hold onto that child, right? That state of mind and that state of presence should, in my opinion, be used in a lot more often in people's lives, men's lives, because it'll give men the sense of peace in communicating openly about their feelings. Men don't talk to each other about their problems. They joke about them. And then they judge each other and they shame each other. You know, they always try to one-up each other. And I've spoken to so many men using specifically this topic and say to them what I've been sharing with you, they have no words to respond because they've never believed that it was okay for them to feel these things and to talk about them with other people. They've never been given the space to do that. And there's a massive movement now of, of you know, men's well-being and mental health crisis and masculinity and all that stuff. Massive movement. And I'm so glad that it's coming through because, you know, it's going to really help our relationships. It's going to help our communities. It's going to help our societies when you have a man that is able to be strong but also be sensitive. You know, much like we have women who are able to be very strong and they're able to be sensitive. We have women running massive businesses and taking care of their family at the same time. There's that New Zealand... Um, president. But bro, didn't she just have her second child? And she's the president of a country. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Confused interpretation of masculinity. It's the dominance. Masculinity is dominance and, you know, assertiveness and confidence and strength. And where femininity is sensitivity, compassion, empathy. And she's got both of them, quite clearly. And there's a lot of people out there that have got that. And sure, there's, I think there's a lot of men that have got that as well. But I think men, it's still to this day, 2023, we still have a long way to go for men to get to the point where they can match women when it comes to the balance of femininity and masculinity. It almost seems like some sides of men is we pretend doesn't exist, right? Like, I've had sort of a conversation where I changed somebody who was like, you know, I'm looking for someone that I can you know, connect with and share the emotional experiences and whatever, and you know, the general conceived ideas about guys is, oh, you know, they just want the pretty girls, and, mm. and there's reason behind that, and all. Sure, guys, you know, able to you know receive an emotion and speak about someone's emotion, that they almost are highlighted as something special, and I think it's really cool they do what they do, but the fact that that is like this unusual thing that's mm. treated as like you know a light in the dark, it's a bit of an odd spot, isn't it? Right? This should be the the norm, and I think it's really cool that people do that. Yeah. But it, it's just the circumstance that it is this profound thing in a world where we want mm. it to happen everywhere. I mean, again, I think that's another circumstance that is going to be um, sub subjective, depending on the set of the demographic. You know, different cultures are going to be very different based on their femininity and their masculinity. They've got very different mindsets and perspectives towards it. But at least from our perhaps UK and Americanized South African demographic, you know, conditioning that we've had, that the practice of uh, men opening up about their emotions is very, 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 very rare. And it kind of relates again to it in that men would rather be angry and rage than be sensitive and weak because rage gives you a sense of control. It's one of the emotions that is very, very important. Anger is a very important emotion because it does give you a sense of control. And it also gives you a big boost to accomplish a task. Anger is a very powerful thing. But when it becomes the only emotion that we use, and it's the only emotion that we let other people see, firstly, it becomes very toxic to us. And secondly, it's toxic to the other people around us. As we move through these 
movements that have been taking place over the last couple of years in terms of masculine vulnerability and, and, and sensitivity and such like that. I'm hoping that more and more men are going to start to recognize that that vulnerability, that willingness to be open about what it is that they're feeling doesn't mean just talking about it. It actually means feeling it. You don't have any words to describe this right now. You are expressing the actual feeling, whether you are in a fetal position on the floor crying, you're holding your loved one, whatever it is, you're doing it. You're having the physiological expression of that feeling. I'm hoping that men will start to get to that point where they accept that rather than try to cognitively intellectualize it. And I'm not saying that I'm any good at it either. I mean, I may be preaching this right now, but it's still really hard for me to cry. Very hard for me as a man to open up vulnerably. I've been in relationships in the past where I've been judged for being sensitive. I've had relationships end because I desired sensitivity and my partner, my female partner, was so uncomfortable with the idea of me being sensitive because that's not what a man should be. Yes. You know, given she grew up in Iran, in Tehran, my ex-girlfriend, and in that environment, the, the gender roles are dramatically different to here. From that perspective, I can completely understand why she had that belief, that idea. But it certainly was a major catalyst for me in spending more time and pursuing a greater awareness of emotional intelligence for men specifically. And yes, for women, absolutely. But for men specifically, I think it's much more needed right now for men than it is for women. Um, so that women and men can have better relationships, or men and men, or women and women, or whatever it is. But men need to have that space to be able to experience these things openly. With those sort of movements, what do you think are the, the barriers that are restricting them and the things they will achieve in the near future? Barriers that are restricting them? I would say culture is a big one. So for example, as you would know, South African culture, the men here are very guarded and they're very, very butch. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe that kind of a culture. It's very dominating and aggressive. That behavior being incentivized and really encouraged by by other friends. People here in South Africa, they go out to have fights for fun. You know, some people go play board games and other people go and look for fights. Like that's an activity that they do. And I think encouraging that behavior is one limiting thing uh, because it is spending more time in the anger and the rage emotions and less time in the other emotions that we have available to us. I think another limiting thing is the taboo around psychology and going to a psychologist. The taboo that seems to push people away from seeking help. I mean, I, I personally have been to a therapist multiple times in my life. So the first time was when I was like 13. And then I did it again when I was 15. And then I did it again when I was 20. And now I've been seeing the same therapist for every week for the last two years. And it is literally the best thing I've ever done in my entire life. And I've done all sorts of great things. <laughs> I've, done, I've done lots of great things. And this fundamentally is the best thing I've ever done for me my entire life. And it saddens me how much of a taboo there is on psychology. There, a lot of people seem to get scared to say I'm seeing a therapist because I feel that they worry that now people are going to judge me thinking that there's something wrong with me and they need to stay away from me. There's another limiting thing is that seeking for help is not a weakness. It's actually a very powerful strength. Therapy is an interesting one. Exactly. It's that almost admitting to people there's something wrong with you and then people are like well how deep does it go ignoring the fact that people struggle everyone struggles with things right mm -hmm. so it's kind of we're, we're 
we've had this world where, where no one shows they're struggling, so we all get the perception that no one's struggling. And mm-hmm. maybe social media, you know, like yeah. ups that one because mm-hmm. that creates even more perfect world because you can sit there, curate, select content, you know, choose the right moments and filter out that whole side of all the, the mishaps and the struggles of life. It's just kind of a strange thing where we're almost trying to create this reality sort of that actually isn't there and no one really buys it. Everyone knows it's not there, but everyone's trying to buy into this thing. It's like this in like weird inside joke, right? We all know it's and we all know it's like kind of bullshit, right? Yeah. You know, we all we all have our own stuff, so we all can relate. But then we all try so hard to pretend that's not it and try to fit into this kind of mold and the same group projecting it. Exactly. There was a psychologist who was saying how you can look through Instagram and go through all the reels, right? And you could say to yourself consciously, none of this is real. I know that none of this is real, but subconsciously you're actually taking it in and comparing yourself to their reality. Even if you're consciously aware that it's not real, subconsciously you are comparing yourself to that reality. And when we're comparing ourselves to this fantasy, this fiction of a perfect world, and we then open up our eyes and look at our room and we think, oh no, my bed's not made. I am the worst person in the world. Oh no, you know, I've still got a dish in my sink. (laughs) Or no, I have not been to Bali. I am pathetic. Really sad. And I think that again relates to emotional intelligence there, is that people are pursuing this perfect world because they're too afraid to look at the darkness of their emotion. They're too afraid to sit down and be like, why is my room dirty? Oh, it's actually because I've been depressed this week. That I've actually been really sad. That I haven't had the energy to do these things because I've been really sad. They don't have that patience in themselves to sit with that emotion of sadness and see where that came from and take care of it. And then get through it to the point where it's like, okay, that emotion has done what it needed to do and now I'm gonna go make my bed and I'm gonna go clean my room. Rather than doing that, they would rather post pictures on, you know, the Instagram and the book of many faces of everything being perfect. It's, yes. it's sad, yeah. On the, the social media, what do you think are the problematic aspects of it? It's a world, we're in a world very driven by it. There's lots of problems behind it. I would say that, firstly, we are getting lots of dopamine, right? And when we're getting more and more of that dopamine, we kind of get into a sense of flow state, right? And when we're in flow state, we are very malleable. We're also easily manipulated. So that is a, an actual fact in uh, neuro, neuroscience, is that when you are in flow state, you are a lot more easily manipulated because your cognitive thinking has calmed down, as I mentioned before. So I think that when you're scrolling through Instagram and social media, whatever it is, you're getting into a state of flow state and your attention is being put on this thing here and it feels very, 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 very good. But we tend to lose ourselves into that space and this becomes more important than the experience around us. I value this tiny black rectangle more than I do the sunset. I value this tiny rectangle and that video of that person kicking a ball (laughs) more than listening to music with my friends. So in my opinion, I think that social media has an incredible capacity to connect us to help us learn about different cultures, to give us access to different academic information, to give us access to new techniques for creativity, unbelievable stuff. Um, But I think that it also becomes a magnet for the people who don't know how to process their emotions and would rather waste their life staring at those videos. And it encourages people to do that. It encourages people to sit there for hours and watch these videos. Nature has a psychological and a physiological you know, impact on us. Tell us a bit about 
what happens to us when we immerse ourselves in nature and you know why it's so important to and this thing we seem to be doing less and less and less maybe it's a good point to stop and think about what are we depriving ourselves of sure we are hormonal and pheromonal creatures right humans all animals are we communicate with each other based on frequencies. So this, the words that are coming out of my mouth, the sound vibrations. <laughs> okay. they, we also, the reason why we kiss when we find a partner that we like, the reason why we're kissing is because our microbacteria, the bacteria is uh, connecting with the other partner's bacteria and determining whether or not they can support each other. All right. So that is what's happening when we're kissing each other is our bacteria, our microbacteria is trying to connect with the other partner's microbacteria to determine if we are actually a balanced set. Yeah. It's almost like something from the alien movie. Yeah. Okay. But that's but really cool. But really cool. The other dynamic is smells, all right? Yeah. The perfume industry is massive. It's massive. Why is it so big? It's because it becomes the way of our, uh, the way that we attract our mate. If we smell a certain way, but it's not our real smell though. The perfume industry is now creating fake smells to attract other people. So we are always designing these things, mimicking nature to try to optimize our way of, you know, relating with each other or being progressive. We're mimicking nature. We're copying it and trying to put it into our own way. But that doesn't mean that it is our own innate nature. Now, another dynamic that has pushed us further away from nature is if we look at the buildings that we live in, the houses that we live in, they're all hard, straight edged walls, right? They're all made of brick and the roof is a giant rectangle and the door is a rectangle and the, you know, our, our TV is a rectangle, the wall is a big square. Where in nature can you find such perfect geometric shapes? It's, it's very rare. Sure, there are places that do it, but it is not a common thing. Now, if we think about how we respond through pheromones and we respond through hormones and such like that, and we respond by light and sound waves, but we're living in such hard, rigid, geometric housing, how much do you think that is actually influencing our, our psychology? How much is that influencing our relationship with the world around us? It is completely disconnecting us from the natural world. Have you ever heard of earthing? So earthing is a, a technique that's... I don't know whether it has or has not been validated in the psychological community, but essentially it's when you go stand in the grass or in the soil and with your bare feet. And you know when there is lightning striking, you, know, it's, you might need to help me with this one, it's electrons that go up and then the protons come down and that's where the connection happens and the lightning strikes, right? Yes. It's the matching of the electrons and the protons. The earth releases protons. Our body is absorbing those protons through our feet and it is then going through our entire body and then we're releasing the electrons back into the earth again. But we've been wearing rubber shoes in our shoes, what, since like the 20s? So we haven't had direct interaction with the soil and the earth for a long, 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 long time. Not a lot of people actually judge it and shame it. But if you go and spend half an hour on the grass, your bare feet, and just be aware of how you feel, doesn't matter about what you're thinking. Thinking is a cognitive separate concept. Just how you feel. I promise you, nine times out of ten, you will feel much better just by going to go sit outside. There's um, a, a big movement of environmental psychology, like eco-psychology, where they're taking depressed people and, and, and all sorts of people who've been struggling with mental disorders, and they're taking them on little hikes. Some of them easy, some of them challenging. It depends on, on the person's capabilities. And the main intention is to give these people the opportunity to spend as much time as they can in nature, whether it be touching the leaves, touching the roots, getting dirty, getting in lakes, spending as much time as they possibly can 
immersed in nature and they've been getting unbelievable results from that experience. Unbelievable. Better than people taking substances for their PTSD, from all sorts of different kinds of things. It's hard to fathom how much being immersed in the natural world can be supportive for not only your physical, physiological well-being, but your psychological well-being too. Amazing. We have this wealth of value and ability just to to help ourselves out there just by leaving the house, right? Mm -hmm. We've just totally forgotten that very natural sort of way of being. Mm -hmm. What uh, specific things in nature do you find quite like? enriching and valuable? I mean, it's always going to be different for every individual, also very much depending on the geographic location that you're in. You know, I've got friends who are in Egypt that love to go hiking in the desert, you know, but they don't have the opportunity to touch the the, the water in a lake, obviously, because they're in the desert, you know, so it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. all really going to be different than that. But in my opinion, there is no specific nature activity. It's not complicated. It's literally just going outside and spending time in nature. Yeah. Going to a park, a public park, and just and taking your shoes off and spending time there. That's good enough. If you want to go for a big hike and you're, you're fortunate enough to live in an area where there is um, hiking available, go do it because then you're also going to have an opportunity to increase your dopamine by completing a challenge. You know, you've completed this hike, now you've accomplished a thing, you're going to get dopamine hits from there, which is a fantastic benefit, but it's not necessary. It's not the most important thing. You know, just spending time, whether it is in a public park, in, you know, in a massive desert, whether it be near the ocean, whether it be in the jungle, in the forest, doesn't matter. As long as you have natural greenery around you. You can even do it in your back garden. If you've got a back garden and you're fortunate enough to have one, some people definitely don't. But if you have the opportunity, go outside, take your shoes off. Maybe even put your sand, your feet in the sand, in the soil. You know, really get immersed in it as much as you can. And it's that simple. There's nothing more to it. Just physically interact with the natural world and you'll see the benefits for it. As humans, we've spent such a long time of our existence in nature and the way the body works is if we're in a certain environment long enough, it adapts to it and almost makes it part of its process. It kind of goes a bit back to when you were saying looking over the horizon was done so much, but you know, nature that's been with us, you know, always, right? And so when you detract away from nature, those kind of important chemical processes and you know, psychological changes, those, those don't sort of happen. And now we're experiencing symptoms of that in a world with skyrocketing mental health struggles and struggles to connect with others and the whole host of things. Another prime example for that as well is that, so as I said, I spent five years living in Vietnam, right? I'm sure you could see the same thing if you go here in South Africa or anywhere. When I was living in Hanoi, which is a, the capital city of Vietnam, very congested, Often the most it was rated the most polluted city in the world multiple times. All right, it, it was very hectic, very stress orientated, and it was it was tough. The people were very don't get me wrong, like there were a lot of friendly people, but they were stressed, they were agitated and on edge, and they were not very trusting. And there was not so often to see people smiling to strangers. You know, only if you build a friendship and you know this person and they start to trust you, do they start to open up a bit more positively to you. Whereas if you go to the countryside, the middle of the rice field, it's a different story. In the city, you have people who've got their BMWs, you've got their, their fancy Gucci bags, and they've got the material things in a beautiful house, but they're grumpy. Go to the farmlands, the people have just got a spade. <laughs> they've got a spade and one chair that they made out of bamboo, their friend, and they are so happy. Happier than I've ever seen any other person. They've got no doors to their house, they've got no windows, so the mosquitoes attack them every night, but they are happy. Why do you think that is? 
is because they are spending more time in nature. They are spending more time surrounded by the natural world and they have the, everything that they need. They don't need anything more. And sure, I would assume most of the time if you were to offer these material things to them, it'll be a novelty which will make it exciting, instant dopamine. Social media or whatever, playing games, it becomes a, a quick dopamine hit. But without that, they are happy. They don't want anything else. They don't need anything else. Whereas for people living in the city, there's always something more we need. We always need to accomplish another task. We always need to get better at this thing. We always need to be doing the work for mental health. We always need to, there's always something more and it's never enough. Whereas guys in the countryside, they literally have nothing, but they have everything that they need. Yeah, many societies have created artificial needs. Sometimes the problem can be that when you introduce those into, you know, very working systems that you know, people like I said, with nothing, but they're very happy or, you know, indigenous tribal stuff. There's something about the excitement and the unfamiliarity that they will lead to, right? Mm. But, you know, in the long run, like, it's actually, it's better if those things were never introduced, which yeah. is interesting, right? For me personally, I don't want to say that it would be better yeah. because it is. It, it, it is what it is. You know, me saying that it would be better is going to make me assume desire something else to be taking that place. And that's going to cause an internal conflict for me. So I'd rather just accept the fact that it is like that and work towards the other. I think it's very cool that there are people out there in those little remote sections that have found happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It can be quite tough. And they're, they're an example as well, I think. I mean, sure, it can be a very tough environment to live in, but they are living a lot more of a... A natural relationship with the earth and the environment. Sure, it's agricultural farming, but there's still a lot more of a natural relationship with the earth and a lot less time spent in fight or flight. Now, the purpose of fight or flight is to protect us from impending doom, right? Yeah. We, we have the saber-toothed tiger that's coming out of us, fight or flight, you know, most of the time flight, because we can't fight a saber-toothed tiger. But then when that saber-toothed tiger was gone, our fight would look over the horizon and our fight or flight would, would relax, okay? But in us, in the modern society, we're driving massive metal machines over 120 kilometers an hour speeding down the highway. Consciously, we're not scared, but our body, is freaking out. It's 120 kilometers an hour. It's an unnatural thing. Nothing else on the earth will move to that speed. So I personally believe that our bodies are now holding on to a fight or flight stress response by doing something as simple as that. By we're walking in, in the city center and you have all of these massive buildings and if you don't have a tree line just in front of it, that building becomes overwhelming to the point where you start to feel oppressed. This is an actual psychological fact that, that why they had to put tree lines, tree avenues next to tall buildings was because it created one step and psychologically it made it more comfortable for the pedestrians. If there were no trees, they were super overwhelmed by just the massive height of these things. Okay? Yeah. It makes us feel insignificant in time. That creates more fight or flight. That creates more stress. Every aspect, day-to-day lives in the modern world is stress-orientated. But we just accept that. We just live it that way. You know, they take a lot of people from those rural settlements and bring them into the city. They'll break apart. They freak out. They can't manage it. They struggle. Yeah. It takes a long time to adapt. As you create more and more complexity and complex scenarios and you know, threats and all sorts around us, you need more and more complex solutions, which is why there's, there's all these things you have to do and this, this, and this, and you know, now you're struggling with that and then that and that. It's like a chaos, right? Mm. It's a lot to put on someone. Absolutely. It's too much. I think it's way too much. I mean, the amount of stuff that we are doing today compared to, you know, the 1500s, 
It's insane. <laughs> it's absolutely insane how much we take on every single day compared to those people back in the day. It's sad and it's scary. To, and people will, will do it without question, without worry. They do it as well because it, it does, it makes them feel good, but it's a temporary feel good. You know? It's really temporary. So they, that, that they need to do another thing, then they need to do the next thing, and they need to get to the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. They need to take on more responsibilities or whatever it is. I personally believe that it is unbelievably toxic. Sure, it has been amazing for the creations that have come from that. You know, we never would have gotten to the moon if we were for that. We never would have developed planes if it wasn't for that. But again, what is more important, our natural well-being or the progress of discovery? Exactly. It's a great question, right? The medical fields, one of the biggest sort of easy sort of, well, we can live a lot longer and a lot less stricken from disease and vermin. Although in some ways we're inflicting a lot more diseases on ourselves. But, yeah. but still, yeah, we're living pretty pretty long and pretty healthy relative to, yeah. to, to time. That's a win. But then just to be a functional, happy person in society, it's a lot. And this is why so many people struggle with it, right? Mm. It becomes an accomplishment. When you see someone who's become successful, they're happy, their health's good, they're doing what they want to do. That is like an epitome of achievement, right? Mm. And it's, it's actually daunting to a lot of people. But, you know, that going from like something that should just be the maybe a normal state and you know when people don't reach that normal state well then that should be what struggle is no that now it's reaching that kind of normal state to me is like people like wow i was just figuring out how to, to be happy and deal with problems but to other people it's like wow you know yeah it's a kind of mountain sure. yeah well yeah so many people again they're they're placing value on these external things how many of those billionaires are out there that are actually sad They've got all of the things, but how many of them have got mental disorders? How many of them have tried to commit suicide? How many of them are abusing their partners? How many of them have been doing copious amounts of drugs? They're all freaking out. And nearly every single one of them that has had a tough time says that I have it all, but I have nothing. Yeah. Because they don't know who they are and they don't know how to feel their things. They don't have their community. They don't spend their time in nature. You know, and then you'll have the people who've got absolutely nothing like those people on the farm and they're so happy and we admire them, you know? Innately, internally, we are admiring these people who've got absolutely nothing. We're admiring them because they're happy, because they're at peace with their environment. Yeah. You know, whereas so many other people are admiring these wealthy capitalistic venturers for their success, but they're not happy. We're talking again about the external accomplishments that we need to consistently chase after rather than just the acceptance of where we are right now. And to swing it back again, spending time in nature and really committing to the time in nature will help us bring ourselves into that present moment with our emotions and find that sense of peace in that present moment. With the sharing of the pheromones and the hormones and the protons and the electrons and all of these things, it's going to bring us into a baseline that is very, 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 very supportive and healthy. Another aspect of being that you have sort of emphasized to me is uh, the power of storytelling, right? Mm. And its role in self-awareness, the overarching theme and, you know, personal growth, right? Mm. More than just sharing fun stories with your friends. And mm. It's got a role to play. Before the human species was able to speak with each other, before words were developed, we were still painting pictures on the walls and we were still sharing stories. That's a story. We were educating our youth through these stories. We're passing down ideologies through these stories. Stories have been the first form of communication and sharing of wisdom and knowledge and passing it down to the generations. 
rather than it being you know in a logical fashion where it's point formed in a structured order these stories had main characters they had you know bad characters they had enemies they had tragedy they had all these different kinds of circumstances because people could relate to them because everybody has main characters and good characters and bad characters and tragedies everybody has those people in their lives so it becomes relatable it's a lot more relatable if you want want to try to train somebody in a new skill and you try to just tell them in point form this is what you need to do sure eventually they'll pick they'll, they'll figure it out eventually but if you tell them in a story you give it a, a narrative and you walk them through that story the likelihood of they're going to understand it as soon as that story is finished and the likelihood of them being able to use that skill is much more likely much more possible the other really valuable thing about stories is that they can be absolutely anything. You can create them from scratch, much like a lot of people tend to do with their own inner traumas. So the story that we tell ourselves is that we're not good enough. Then we come up with a reason and a memory or a circumstance to justify us saying to ourselves, we're not good enough. I'm not good enough because I said this bad thing to that person at that time. Right, there's the story. Now you're repeating that same story to yourself. It's gonna be something that you're gonna remember more and more and more and more. Right? There's that cliche where they say that words are magic, that's why they call it spelling, because they're a spell. I like it. I think it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely fantastic, because it's true, in my opinion. When you say things as an affirmation and you add a physiological response to that affirmation, your body is going to start producing the chemicals that are needed to respond to that. There's a specific uh, part in your brain, right in the center of your brain. Part of your brain responds to the things that you say to yourself and then tells the rest of the body to produce the chemicals needed as a result of that thought okay so if you say to yourself there's a tiger coming i'm scared that little part of your brain is now going to register that and it's going to start producing the cortisol and all the other chemicals that are needed to be able to respond to that experience you've got a, a, a challenge in front of you if you say i'm scared you're going to have the cortisol and the worry chemicals but if you say I'm going to beat that. I'm going to accomplish that. I'm going to do it. Whether it does or does not happen is besides the point. But your body is going to start producing the chemicals to help you achieve that. Your body responds to the things that you say to yourself. So storytelling is fundamental for our own self-awareness when it comes to our emotional intelligence. Storytelling is fundamental for our education. Storytelling is fundamental for so many aspects of our lives because it was the very first form of communication that we ever had as a species and we've forgotten that. I believe that learning to tell your own story in the way that you want it to be like, what story you want to tell yourself is one of the best things that we can do for ourselves. Deciding what story do you want to tell yourself? What story do you want to share for yourself? Who do you want to be? And then also when you're, when you're with your, your friends, for example, you like board games. Yes. And you have a group of friends that like board games too. You guys can get into flow state. You get what's called group flow state. Okay? If, you're, if your skill sets are at relatively the same level, your awareness is relatively at the same level, and you introduce this challenge, this risk-taking challenge, okay? You can access group flow state. And everybody is really engaged and they feel really good about it. They feel very, very positive. They feel productive. They feel you know, constructive. They feel like they're achieving something, right? You're bonding as a community through a story. Game is a story that you're all creating in your own mind. 
Sure, you've got the little pieces and you've got the pictures and they're very useful and they're wonderful. But essentially, it's a story that is connecting your people together and bringing a community together and it's making you guys feel better about yourselves and better about your day and why you keep going back to the stories. Why are movies so big? Why does everyone watch movies? They're stories. They're stories about heroes. They're stories about loss. They're stories about tragedy. They're stories about things that people can relate to. They're stories that help people learn more. The stories are really not acknowledged for how important they are in every aspect of our lives. Take charge of your own narratives and say, you know, this, as opposed to just responding to a scenario, you can decide where to take it. And I suppose storytelling is our way to store experiences, which is the emotion, the actions, the interplay of the people, as opposed to just you know, stripping away just the, the facts of it, you know, um, which we seem to do a lot. We've, we've gone away from storytelling and the experiences and the interactions to more what happened. I need mm -hmm. to digest this information. Just taking a part of the fun of it, but also a lot of the value and context away from it. Absolutely. So as I mentioned before, I was an ESL teacher in Vietnam and I still teach English now. But when we design our lessons, we essentially follow the same structure as a story. You have your introduction, you have your body, and you have your conclusion. The introduction is for the warmer. It's just a game to get them engaged in using the language. But then the rest of the lesson content needs to follow a certain storyline in order to keep them engaged. If the lesson content is jumping from random places to random places where it's just content, 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 and you're throwing it at them and expecting them to absorb it all. Right now we're doing present continuous and now we're learning the vocabulary of different countries and now we are going to do, you know, maths in English. They're so vastly different and juxtaposing that there's no storyline. And a lot of the students don't take away much information from those lessons. Firstly, because they're not engaged. And secondly, there's, it's not following a continuous pattern. It's not following a flow. Yes. When you add a storyline to your lesson with the content and you move from the warmer into the next part and then you introduce the, challenge, the target language that's challenging and then you give them the opportunity to use that target language in other activities through the lesson and then you bring them together and make a team activity where they're all using the target language together and it's fun and it's engaging and some people are winning and some people are losing or whatever it is and then you can conclude with a reflection on what it is that you've learned today, 8 out of 10 students remember what they've learned, they're able to use it every single day in conversation, and it's a completely different language. <laughs> it's a different language, but they're able to retain that information and use it because there's a storyline that's attached to it. The structure of storytelling is a process as opposed to just a handing over of information. And, you know, things like starting, giving background, tells people, you know, what is happening and why are we here and what do I have to look forward to, right? There's a bit of insight as opposed to, oh, you've just arrived. Yeah. And then, okay, now we're giving you information. But now engage with that information, or, you know, ask questions or do that challenging activity where your brain has to take information and apply it in order to, you know, achieve something. Continually finding avenues to take information, acknowledge, you know, why it's valuable and why you want to use it and then using it and then appreciating why you use it. Absolutely. I think. It's that kind of fun interplay that adds the joy to it 
and the significance and maybe the equivalent of character building. You, you invest in the characters. You have an idea of where the story's going. You want to see where it goes. Exactly. You know? It's immersive. You're immersed in the experience rather than just being flooded with random information. Absolutely. And, and uh, there is more and more of a movement as we move from the information age to the content age. You know, TikTok and Instagram and all of the AI developments and such like that. There's so much content that is being pumped out and the economy is starting to shift towards more content orientated income and shit, such like that, that storytelling is becoming more and more of an important skill to be able to have. Uh, and it's not just, I don't, when I say storytelling, we don't mean writing a book. You know, it's not about being able to tell a story in the sense of a movie or as a book. It's more about being able to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, a, a flow, if you will, of whatever it is that you're engaging in. If you're creating a content, you have a beginning and a middle and end of that content. You know, a, an accomplishment in that task with the main hero, and then you know, a loss or whatever it might be, something relatable for the people to immerse themselves into. Whether it be business, whether it be politics, whether it be you know, education, it's become more and more important to be able to engage in storytelling in all areas of life. Is there any examples of where a story was quite powerful in getting something across to you and developing that process? This personally is just a unique experience and I know that many people will not have related to this one but I mentioned that my stepbrother practiced shamanism in the Amazon jungle for 12 years or something of the sort. But I was very fortunate enough to experience ayahuasca four times with him. Uh, practicing the traditional ceremony with the chakruna and the, the mapacho and all of the different substances. And in the visions that I was experiencing, I had multiple ones. There was one that has stood with me and I think it will stay with me forever. And it was a visual story where I was thrust into a hospital bed. And slowly but surely, every person that I'd ever had a really nice connection with came into the room and was crying. And I couldn't hear what they were saying, but they were crying and they put their hand on me and then they left. And then it like sped up and it became a lot more of a wellness where even plants that I had enjoyed, you know, animals that I had interacted with came into the room and everything that I'd ever loved came into the room and essentially said goodbye to me. And that's when I registered that I was dying in this vision. And then my mother came into the room and she was the last person and, and, and she said goodbye. And for each of these people, it was very, very hard for me in the position. It felt so real. It was very hard for me to let go, to say goodbye, to say the words goodbye, to let them leave the hospital room to let me die. It was very, very hard. That was the main challenge at that time. But my, with my mother, it was the hardest. And I think a lot of men would be able to relate to that. If not the most important, you know, influence, so definitely one of the big impactful influences in your life. Right? Absolutely, 100% bro, yeah. When I was able to eventually say goodbye to my mother in that vision, she left the room and then everything went black. Everything went completely black and I felt myself falling for miles upon miles upon miles. And as I was falling, I just felt myself kind of just withering away. And then in the vision, I hit the ground and... I was like pus. I was literally pus. I had no arms, I had no legs, I had no eyes, I had no ligaments. I was just pus. And then, as I like to say, is the, the spirit of ayahuasca entered that dark space. And she was massive, huge, bigger than the tallest building you can imagine. And she had this big black cloak and long, scary fingers. 
And she looked down at me as this tiny puff and said, cool, pick yourself up. And I was like, what do you, how, what, what do you mean I'm pus? <laughs> how do I do this? You know? And uh, she stayed there. She didn't leave. She just stayed there and said, cool, pick yourself up. And you decide what you want to be like. When you pick yourself up, you're pus now. You've lost everything. You decide what you want to be like. So I did. I was then, okay, I visually conceptualized my hands, my arms, my legs, my eyes, my nose, my mouth, my ears, the tips of my knee, the back of my heel. I went through the whole process of conceptualizing and visualizing what I wanted to look like. And as soon as I was able to do that, I looked up at Ayahuasca and I was like, I want to be equal, if not connected to you. So I made myself a giant just like her and I hugged her and then a wonderful adventure took place where actually it became a bird and it was very, very trippy. In terms of a story that really influenced and helped me was without this storyline of having lost and had to let go of everything that I had loved, everything that I was attached to and to let go of what I believed my body was like. If I didn't have that story, to have lost everything and then to have started building myself up again from scratch and how I wanted to live and how I wanted to be. Yeah, I needed that storyline to be able to go through the process of letting go of these insecurities and these beliefs. I needed to go through the storyline of being that pus. I needed to go through the storyline of developing my own idea of what I wanted to look like in order to be the person that I am today. I needed the storyline. Yeah, you needed the process and the insights. If you had just jumped to the end, like the value of what you had gotten wouldn't have mattered or you know, really solved anything, right? Absolutely, it's, absolutely. And there's many other storylines like that, you know, but essentially in the nutshell, that's, it's so important to my, I believe. You have quite a, an interest in, you know, helping sort of groups and even individuals with their mental health using these things you've learned and mentioned. And so what does that kind of process look like? structures or routines or programs and techniques to help support others. Tell us a bit about that kind of journey and what, what that is to you. I'm going to be working on workshops and projects where I can facilitate and guide people with these different techniques in time. So far, the experiences for me have been going to different retreats, like meditation retreats and yoga retreats and such like that, and where people are a lot more open and susceptible and, and willing to kind of let their guard down for the sake of healing. For me at the moment has been more of just discussion about it, just talking about this content, just talking about this stuff and giving an awareness towards it. Eventually I would like to be able to run full workshops where, for example, we start the workshop, have people in two lines and they look at each other and they're complete strangers, they don't know each other, but look into each other's eyes and say one thing that they like about each other and then one thing that they don't like about themselves and then move into a group sense of vulnerability where they're all surrendering their guard, they're all opening themselves up and when you can see that you're opening yourself up with a group of other people, you can get into a sense of community and you can get into a sense of flow and you can go into um, a sense of more confidence and comfort in what you're doing. You know, you say these things to each other and it has an impact, you know, say something you 
you know, happy about with yourself. But maybe just like talk about what's happening there when okay. the people are saying those things in that interaction. Sure. So when you are chatting with a complete stranger, you're going to have your own insecurities front and center. You're going to have your own judgments front and center. You're going to have all those things front and center. All of that's your guard. That's all your safety mechanisms, all right? Your defenses. But if you get the strangers in a line and you put them in two lines and you give them a minute just to look at each other in their eyes, firstly, just that action of staring at someone in their eyes and them staring at yours, we all know it, it can be very uncomfortable. Why? It sounds so simple on paper, right? Yeah, but it's so uncomfortable for a lot of people, all right? And it's because it's a moment where you're very vulnerable. A person is looking at you and you're not actually vulnerable, but a person is looking at you and they're listening to you and you're getting that attention. And the same thing is the other way. So that in itself creates a bit of uncomfort. That creates a bit of sensitivity and it's an opportunity for your guard to go up a bit more. But you give the space with the people that you're in there with the time and the patience to to move their eyes around and look away, but wait and be patient until they're feeling more comfortable to look in that other person's eyes and stay there. Now we've developed a, a bit more of a relationship where it's okay. Yes, that felt uncomfortable. We both felt uncomfortable, but we got through that. We're okay now. Then you say one thing that you don't like about yourself. You admit something that you really don't like about yourself, and it can be anything. It can be your way that you look, it can be something that you've done, it can be anything that you don't like about yourself. And then the other person, who should be a complete stranger to you, someone that you've never met before, that person says something that they like about you. Your hair, the clothes that you're wearing, the sheen on the tip of your nose. People can struggle with that because people are always worry about what they're going to think when I say that. And people are sometimes shy and secure to say nice things about other people. You know? The whole purpose of this is to shake that snow globe of insecurity. Yeah. The whole purpose of this is to give each other the opportunity to be uncomfortable, but to be uncomfortable together. Yeah? yeah. To have that group support of being uncomfortable together. So once we've shared the things that we like about each other. Now we've got a stronger bond. We've gone through uncomfort, we've gone through vulnerability, and we've gone through kindness and sharing. Now we're a much firmer community already. From that exercise, there's lots of other things that could be done. I like to use that as an introduction exercise, but there's lots of other activities that could be engaged. For example, um, sometimes ecstatic dancing can be very, very useful for the same reason in that it can feel very uncomfortable and it gives you an opportunity to get out of your comfort zone. Aesthetic dancing essentially just means music is played and you just move however you want to move. You let your body move however you want to move and everybody is just dancing in any way that they want. That's one technique. Then I would start introducing those other touch techniques that I was telling you about before where you actually spend time and explain the process and you give them notes to to really reflect and to think about that. I've got an archive of different techniques and practices that I'm really looking forward to introducing to see how they function. What sort of elements about people and their being do you want to challenge or improve with, with these type of techniques? Like what sort of things have you looked into? This is an example of dealing with uncomfortability and building trust. Are there sort of other themes and areas to focus on? And Absolutely, yeah. So there's the sense of trust, there's team trust, there's personal trust, there's vulnerability, there's a sense of emotional regulation, you know, so being able to actually spend time with your own emotion and the thought and the memory and learn how to process it with different techniques and share that with each other. The ability to 
believe and see how your belief can have a effect on your physical body down the line and give them the science behind it to actually show them on a neurological level what happens when you are grateful or when you believe in something and how your mind starts to change. For example, gratitude. So gratitude is a religious practice. Christians sit around a table and they hold hands and they say, they give thanks. Thank you for the meal. Thank you for our family. Thank you for these things. And for many years, for myself, I believe that that was just religious woo-woo, right? Neuroscience comes along and says, okay, cool. So when you are practicing gratitude, you are creating new neural pathways in your brain that are looking for things to be grateful for. So because you are doing that, the more you do that, like we spoke about the dog, the more you spend time being grateful, you are creating stronger and stronger neural pathways in your mind that help you look for things to be grateful for. And gratitude reduces cortisol. Cortisol is the stress chemical that freaks everybody out. So I wouldn't be able to take these religious and spiritual practices that a lot of people worry about as woo-woo and give them the neuroscience and the terminologies and the facts to help them recognize that this is actually true and good for you. Yeah. And so what kind of motivated you to develop these practices and courses? Where did this all come from? Hard to say exactly. I had a rough upbringing. I had a time, I had a lot of challenges that I needed to face and I spent a lot of time trying to face these challenges alone because I was too scared to communicate with people. I had the same mentality that psychology was a taboo and it was a problem. And I wanted to believe and I wanted to find a way of healing that wasn't so critical. It wasn't as critical as the psychiatry or psychology. Psychiatry, that's wrong with you, take these drugs. There you go, fix your brain, bye. Okay, psychology is, and uh, don't get me wrong, there's a, a massive field, there's a spectrum of psychology now that I know, but in the past, I was worried that psychology was just only talking about your past problems and not helping you progress to the future, not giving you positive psychology, not helping you learn about your behavior. It's just talking about the past. That's what I used to believe, right? So when I went through all of these tough challenges in myself, remember I mentioned that I was 110 kilograms and that I was depressed and that I didn't care about anything. I wanted to take more control of my life. So that's where I jumped into CBT and that's where I jumped into flow state and I jumped into ocean intelligence and all of these things because I wanted to heal myself. And I found that when I was going through this learning process, I would communicate with some people about what I was learning. Some would be good friends, some would be complete strangers. And the response that I got from these people was always filled with gratitude and desire for more. All of the responses were, we never get to talk about these things with other people and we think it's really important. And they give me a hug and they say, thank you so much for being who you are and for talking about these things, we need it more. So the desire to build these projects has really come from the awareness now that there's not enough people in the world who are available to talk about these things and make themselves available to talk about these things. And I would like to be able to help people recognize that there is more to life than what they are currently experiencing. So we've talked about you know, these various aspects of self-awareness. What do you think the value that we can take away from the interplay of these and how we can take advantage of this knowledge? In my opinion is that it'll help us develop a better relationship with nature and a better relationship with the people around us and a better relationship with ourselves so that we could live more sustainably in a material fashion as well as in an emotional and psychological fashion. What are your thoughts on you know, support systems and people 
need or ability to help others? Do we need to live life on our own? When we fall, what's there to catch us? How do you think we should engage us in the world? I believe that there is no right path. I don't believe that right exists because it's always going to be subjective depending on the culture, depending on the demographic, depending on the belief system. It's always going to be very different. But I do know that primarily we are a community species, that we need to have other people around us, that we need to have touch. We need to have, hear somebody else's voice. We need to hear our own name said to us. We need that. I can say from personal experience, I isolated myself dramatically when I went through this whole period because there was no one for me to talk to about this stuff. I could have spoken to a therapist, but I would need to pay for that. And not many people wanted to talk about these things. So I isolated myself dramatically, thinking that there was something that I need to pursue, but I need to do it alone. And I've come to learn that trying to do things alone like that, I think will be the hardest thing we ever do. It can take away from the pleasure and the, the, the joy of it if we don't share that with people. I think that we need to make sure that we have people around us who we trust and who trust us. And there was this quote that I have to paraphrase which says that home is the place where people wonder why you're not there. I really relate to that where if you have people that care about where you are, who you are, whether it be very, very deep stuff like going through emotional intelligence, or if it is simply, have you eaten today? Having those people with you will help carry you. You don't need to know the psychological, the academic terminologies. You don't need to know these deep concepts. You don't need to know them to be able to live them. And I think I would like to be able to help people become aware of them so that they can live them. I would like to do the hard work of learning what it is, why it is, and how it can be shared with other people so that they can spread it amongst their own friends thereafter. I think it's very important that we have other people and we don't do it alone. What can an individual at home do to help those around them going through these journeys? I would say one thing would be express art. Be creative. If you write poetry, let people see it even if it's bad. If you make music, let people hear it. If you drew pictures, let people see it because to you, it might seem insignificant and bad, but to them, they may see someone who is being vulnerable and showing a part of themselves that they don't show to anyone else. That picture could change their world. That poem could make them believe in themselves again. That song could make them want to see the world. You don't know what power your vulnerability has on other people. And the other thing is, don't be afraid of small talk. Oh, that's a terrifying monster in the corner that leaps out at the moment. Do <laughs> you yeah, have anything too good to add? Yeah. I think a lot of people shame small talk because they want people to go deep. But the purpose of small talk is it works like a buffer. Small talk is there to help us see how deep we are willing to go with this other person and how deep they are going to go. And if they're not going to go very deep, we're only going to talk about the shallow end. That's what small talk is there for. And I don't think that the deep talks are really, it doesn't need to be the goal. The goal needs to be feeling good with the people that you're with. It doesn't matter what it is that you're doing or what you're talking about. As long as you're feeling good, held, trusted, and in trust with other people. People at home, sitting alone, share your art, and try something new that you've never done before. 
and talk to the person next to you while you're doing it. It can be a complete stranger. And just get to know their name. Just start there. At the same stage in the show, if any cool stories you want to tell, or words of wisdom, all that sort of thing, there's a nice little open mic moment for you. There is an interesting guy that I think everyone should uh, read up on. It's called the Mind Architect. And one of the things that he said was that everything that has happened to you needed to happen to you because it happened. That's it. It would not happen any other way. And there's another guy named uh, Dr. Martinez. They helped me learn that the most painful and the hardest experiences that you've ever been through in your life you need to find a way to be grateful for them because when you can find the lesson that you've learned from that bad experience, you can find how much that bad experience created you in a way that you wanted to be available and good to other people. You're then going to be grateful because you never would have been that person without that terrible experience. Yes, it was terrible. Yes, it hurt, but it happened. It's not happening now and it's helping you be a better person thereafter, if you choose to. Thanks for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure, man. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. 